If you had the opportunity to join us from the very beginning, we started with a song that's fairly new. We've been singing uh, entitled, Is He Worthy? And the first couple of questions right out, of the, right out of the box here on this song are these. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Like if there's ever been a time in, in my life, in my experience, and I see a lot of you shaking your heads. If there's ever been a time in our lives where we said, without any hesitation, the world is broken, surely it's now. And the next line of the song is, do you feel the shadows deepen? Like in the world around us, wherever there's darkness, it just seems to be getting darker. If there's ever been a time in my life experience and probably your life experience where you sensed a darkness in the world around us, surely it is now. And then this next line, but do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. And it is good for us to remind ourselves of this, isn't it? As Christ followers, that's one of the reasons why we gather together to remind one another that despite the brokenness we see, despite the shadows darkening in the world around us, we know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through. And so this sermon series we're in, uh, The Light in the Darkness, is not just a theory, is it? It's something that's really happening in our lives today. We're going to continue that series today in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And the title of the sermon is The Light of the Gospel. So now we're going to talk very specifically about what is that light that shines into that darkness in the world around us. I was saying earlier... Um, you never know what you're going to miss out on by making a choice on what service you come to. And so in the first service today, you weren't here. You missed an incredible light show, just a great light show crew up there. You guys were just rocking it. I mean, lights were going crazy. And I'm saying all that because all of our technology went haywire in the 8 a.m. service. Lights were flickering. I was blue. Then I was red. Then it went dark, and, and it was just this fun light show with all the technology of lights. But um, before we had all the LED and technology, we had like fluorescent. But do you remember what was before that? The incandescent light bulb? Like that was like cutting edge technology at some point. Most of us didn't take time to really figure out what made a light bulb work, right? For us, what makes the light bulb work is you flip the switch. And if you flip the switch on, it doesn't come on. You unscrew the light bulb, and you throw it in the trash, and you put a new light bulb in. Like, who took time to like pull it apart and see what was going on? Well, inside the glass dome of the light bulb, you had gas, and then you had this like tungsten uh, piece of metal inside of there that heated up and it glows and it makes light, right? But the thing is that it doesn't matter how awesome all of those pieces are if the main ingredient isn't there, which is what? What makes it work? Electricity, right? So you can screw that light bulb in, everything could be right and in proportion and Everything could be just perfect. You screw it in. If there's no electricity, the light bulb's not going to work. Now, I'm going to apply that now to our, our part and our role of being a light in the darkness around us. So for a lot of us, when we think about that, what does that mean to be a light in the darkness? We think about, well, that means being a good person. That means being friendly and kind and compassionate and generous and selfless. And all those things are, are great, but we have to understand all those things are really the glass globe around the light bulb. If that light bulb is not screwed into electricity, if you and your life is not rooted in something more powerful than yourself, you won't be a light. You can go out and try to do good deeds and, and serve the people around you, but in the end, you will only contribute to the darkness. We're gonna pick this 
uh, series up in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Now, a little preface. What Paul is about to do, the Apostle Paul writing this in 2 Corinthians 3, is he's going to contrast the difference between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant right, presented in the Old Testament, versus what happens after the cross in the New Testament with the new covenant, okay? So there's gonna be a contrast back and forth in these first few verses, starting in verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have more glory? So already contrasting, he's calling the old covenant, this, um, this ministry of death carved in stone. We'll talk more about why it's called that. But he's also talking about something better that is called the ministry of the Spirit. And he's referring to the New Testament, the new covenant. Verse nine. For if the glory of the ministry of condemnation, excuse me, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So first he said, ministry of death, ministry of the spirit. Now he's saying ministry of condemnation. He's gonna say ministry of righteousness. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so in the contrasting, he's already saying some things. The old covenant that was written on tablets, written in stone, the commands of God, he's calling it the ministry of death. He's also calling it what? The ministry of condemnation. Over here, we've got the ministry of the spirit and the ministry of righteousness. So what is he, talk, what is he talking about? So the old covenant that God made with his people in the Old Testament was pretty simple. Here are the commands, obey them and you will live. Here are the commands, disobey them and you will die. Here are the commands, obey them and you will be blessed. Disobey them and you will be cursed. That was the old covenant. Now, God being just, that's a, that's a just agreement with people, isn't it? That's how we parent a lot of times. <laughs> obey me and you get the stuff. Disobey me, you don't get the stuff. It's, it's it, kind of the map for how we parent, right? Punishment and reward, that was the old covenant. Now, the problem with that is there wasn't anybody who could obey the commands. So all that came out of that was what? Death and curse. I mean, from the beginning, God said to Adam, what? Here are the rules, obey them and you will live. Disobey them and what? You will surely die. Disobedience leads to death. Now, we would sit and go, yeah, that's a fair agreement. The problem is, as you and I enter into that agreement, none of us can, can, can obey, right? None of us can fulfill all that the commands require, so we're sunk. We're hopeless. We're in darkness, right? Unless God does something to rescue us from this old covenant. And so Paul is comparing the two. He calls this one the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. Why? Because that's all the stone tablets could do was condemn us. Show us where we're wrong, right? And show us where we fall short. So now we have this new covenant, this ministry of life, this ministry of righteousness. Now, what I wanna talk about for just a minute are the new versions of the old covenant because sometimes we mix things up here in the church. 
and we distort this new covenant, this new gospel that comes to us through Christ. And I'll give you a few examples. I won't mention them all, but here are a few examples. Moralistic deism, okay? You see it running rampant in the church today. This idea when we elevate morality above God. And, and the way it looks practically is, if you're good enough, God will let you into heaven. So we emphasize the morality. Be a good person, be a good person. You and I aren't very good at being good people, so what do we have to do? Back away from the church, or we put on a facade and we try to look better than we are. Moralistic deism. We take morality and we make it the deity and we worship it and we try to be it and we try to earn our way in to heaven. You see how that's just a distorted version and kind of a, a new version of the old covenant? Other versions of that, the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be wealthy and rich and have lots of friends. Your best life now. Well, what happens when the world comes crumbling down around you? What happens when you lose your job, your child is diagnosed with cancer, you go broke, or, right? Your friends betray you. What happens if you bought into that, that, then something's wrong with you, right? And so it's just a new version of the old covenant, the word of faith movement, that whatever the desires of your heart are, if you just have enough faith, God will give it to you. Right? You just, whatever you're thinking, if you have enough faith, God will give it to you. What's the problem with that? I put all the faith I've got out on the table and I'm not still get, getting what I want. So what's the problem? Oh, it's me. I must not have enough faith. You see how all of those versions of the gospel come back to me and what I can do, what I can achieve for myself, what I can earn, what I want. That's the old covenant. And Paul is saying, listen, that's the ministry of death. Don't go out there and preach that gospel because that's going to heap up burden. That's going to take the darkness and make it even darker. But there is a new covenant, this ministry of righteousness, this ministry that leads to life in Christ. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, he's going to talk about glory and he's going to talk about a veil. It's really important to understand what he's talking about. So in the Old Testament, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, right? God is speaking to Moses. Now, Moses can't fully be exposed to the glory of God or he will what? Die. <laughs> yeah, sinful man can't stand in the presence of glorious God without dying, right? So God even shrouds his glory from Moses, gives him the commandments. But, but Moses has been so close to God that God's glory is radiating off of his face. And so when he comes back down to the people, he has to veil that so that the sinful Israelites won't die. So his face is veiled. Now, what Paul is going to say is, listen, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant isn't without value. There was glory in the Old Covenant, Right? We're going to see in just a minute. The problem was that glory didn't do anything for us other than kill us and condemn us. That's why he calls it the ministry of condemnation. So now we're going to move forward into what he's going to talk about next. So verse 12. So since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We're going to come back to that idea of being brought to an end in just a second. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So this idea of Moses being read is reading the Old Testament. Okay? 
So for those who are still reading the Old Testament, banking on this old agreement, hoping that they'll get into heaven because of their morality and obeying God, there's still a veil there. Verse 17, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Most of us have heard that verse before, but in context here, it's so powerful because this new covenant is the ministry of the spirit, right? And he says, listen, that spirit is the Lord. And where that spirit is, there is what? Freedom. This one over here, this agreement doesn't bring freedom. It brings condemnation, right? Shackles, chains, bondage. But over here in Christ, whatever this new covenant is, it is freedom, And I love what he says next. Before we read verse 18, I want to talk for just a minute about that phrase there of coming to an end. It's actually the third time in this passage that Paul has used this Greek word, coming to an end or brought to an end. That word translated can kind of translate two ways. One is to slowly fade away. The other way, the other way that word gets translated is to be rendered useless, not useful, So as we think about the Old Testament here, this old agreement between God and his people, as we get closer and closer to the New Testament, the glory of that old covenant begins to fade. But not only that, it's rendered useless. Now that doesn't make it worthless, it means it's not useful. It doesn't do anything for us. The only thing it does is condemn us. So something about this new covenant now is useful. It can fix whatever is broken over there. Whatever the old covenant didn't do for us through the commandments, through Moses, something about this new covenant is useful for us. And that's what he's about to talk about here in verse eight, uh, 17 and 18. He says, now, where the, now the spirit, or excuse me, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, 18. And we all, that's the church, with unveiled face, who lifted the veil? Christ. Listen to this beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. So if I'm in the old covenant, this old agreement, I don't get to see the glory of God. There's a veil that shrouds the glory to keep me from dying. But in this new covenant, Christ has lifted the veil and I get to behold the glory of, the ve- of God and it's now useful. How is it useful? It transforms me. See, the old covenant didn't do anything to fix me. But this new covenant in Christ has transformed me because now the veil has been lifted. So you've got the glory of God, you've got sinful man, and you have a veil protecting sinful man from the glory of God. Christ lifts the veil, steps in between. Right? Grab my hand and you won't die when you see the glory of God. And as you and I lean into the glory of God, it does what? It transforms us. That's good news, right? It's not just making me a better version of me. Listen, you don't want more of me. I promise, ask my wife or my kids or my good friends. You've got about as much of me as you want. You need something better. And so what's happening inside of me, my faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in me, the Spirit of the Lord working in me to do what? To transform me into something better. What is the something that's better? Christ. That's what he's saying here. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You see why the old covenant didn't work? We couldn't get that close to God to be transformed. We needed to be transformed in order to be close to God and we couldn't make that work. And so Christ says, I can make that work. Watch this, I will step, I'll remove the veil, I'll be between the glory of God and sinful man, and here's what's gonna happen, I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna make you who is not righteous, 
righteous. And that's why Paul said, listen, this new covenant, it's a ministry of righteousness. Not just a better version of you. Wrap your mind around this. God is not just making you a better version of yourself. He's rendering you righteous. That's a big word. I mean, there's some, some pretty cool people here today, some, some fantastic people watching online, but in your own strength, not one of us is righteous. So Christ has to do a transformative work in us. How does that work? Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next, as we lean into the glory of God through our relationship with him, through what Christ has done, he's transforming us. And he's transforming you into the image of Christ and transforming me into the image of Christ. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now we're gonna go to chapter four and look at the first four verses. So therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Stop for just a minute. Regardless of what version of this old covenant you're operating within, you're gonna lose heart pretty quick. Try to earn God's favor in your own strength and see how long you make it before you start losing heart. Try to earn your way into heaven by being good, by being moral, selfless, See how long it is before you just go, I just can't do it. The burden is just too heavy. Every time I think I'm making ground, I slip and fall, I start back over again. Right, so there's no hope in that. But what, what Paul is saying here in verse one is therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We don't start over again, we keep going. Verse two, but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways and we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Now, this is really important to talk about. So when we start talking about the gospel, the grace of God that comes to us by faith, one mindset is, well, since Jesus died on the cross, forgives me my sins, I can just check out. I'll just ride the wave till the end, go to heaven. It'll be awesome. No big changes in my life right now. I can't make myself righteous, so I'm just going to chill. Just going to kind of go with the flow, do what feels good, right? Paul said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Yes, it's true. You can't earn your way into heaven by being good. But now that your life is plugged into Christ like a light bulb, something's happening in you that you can't deny. There's a transformative work that's happening in you. And so what does that mean for you and I? Here's what it means. Yes, Christ has made you righteous, but you're being called to lean into that righteousness, to lean into the glory of God, to lean into his goodness, to participate in him working in you. So how does that work on a daily basis? Like, what does that mean, like, practically? Well, if you're in Christ, you know what conviction feels like, right? The Holy Spirit wakes you up in the morning, wakes me up in the morning, like, you shouldn't have talked to your wife like that last night. Oh, that's transformative work on the inside, right? You know what? You're right. Shouldn't have treated them that way. Those thoughts you had, those were not holy thoughts. See, that's a transformative work, and I can either push back on that in rebellion, or I can lean into that, right, in repentance. And so what Paul is saying here, just because Christ has done all the work to make you righteous, doesn't mean you don't lean into that, participate in that, right? So it's not like I'm just going to ride the wave of my salvation, I'll see you in heaven, hey. Paul's like, no, that's not what I'm describing here. You're being transformed, which means you've got to lean into that. And so two ways you can do that, how? Renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways. That's renouncing your allegiance to those things. 
And then you can refuse to practice cunning or tamper with the truth of the word of God. Those are two things you can do to participate in what God is doing. Now, let's pick it back up. We refuse to practice, and that's where I'm at right now, so I'm at the second part of verse two. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, so I really want you to think about what he's about to say. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So here's what that means in your life. If you're here, you're in Christ, that veil has been lifted. You have access to the glory of God. People in your life who do not know that hope, who are walking in darkness, have a veil that keeps them from seeing the truth. Now, now we begin to understand why people can be so hard-hearted, so, right, uninterested in, so hardened against religion, the idea of God. And there are a number of reasons of excuses of why they might give to you, why they're not interested. But ultimately, Paul's saying, there's a veil that's keeping them from seeing the glory of God. So if, if real change is gonna happen in their life, if real light is gonna shine into their darkness, it's not gonna be because you argued them into salvation or you convinced them to become a Christian. That veil has to be lifted. So now I need to know, how do I participate in lifting that veil? Okay, because we put, I thought I just had to convince you. I, if I memorized enough Bible verses and convinced you I know the Bible and I'm a scholar, you would just go, oh, you're smart. I want to become a Christian. And Paul says, that's not the problem. There's a heart issue that's keeping people from becoming Christians. There's a veil that's keeping them from seeing the glory of God in Christ Jesus. And so we need to know, how do I participate in removing that veil? Because the answer to that question is the same answer to the question that I'm about to ask. How do I shine as a light in darkness? Because it doesn't matter if my light's shining and there's a veil, they're not gonna see it. You with me? So how can I be involved in God removing that veil so that they can see the glory of Christ reflecting off of you the same way it reflected off of Moses? And that's where we're gonna go here in these last two verses, verses five and six. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. I really wanna stop for a minute and look at that phrase. Before Paul tells us what we can proclaim that removes the veil, he wants to remind us, do not proclaim yourselves. What does he mean by that? Do not proclaim what you can do, right? So sharing the gospel with somebody who's not a Christian is not about you telling them how awesomely moral you are and how awesome your life is going because you obey God and because you go to church and sing with church people and everything, right? That's all rooted in you and what you can do. That's not gonna help anybody. So don't proclaim yourself. Don't brag on yourself. Don't boast on what you did to fix you because that will only heap up more burden, more darkness because they're gonna look at you and go, well, I can't do that. So we don't proclaim ourselves, but here's what we do proclaim. But Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves, your servants for Jesus' sake. That's what we proclaim. Don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and we're just his servants. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Now go back to Moses. The people weren't able to, to behold his face because if so, they would have seen so much of the glory of God, they would have been struck dead. So Jesus has removed the veil so we can see him. So now you're Moses. Think about that. You're Moses now. Unfettered, unhindered, access to the glory of God, and we go out as a light in the darkness, taking that glory, reflecting off of us in the way, but people can't see it unless we proclaim what? Christ. As you proclaim Christ as Lord, the veil is removed and people are able to see his light shining through you. See, it's not enough to just do good deeds because the veil's still there. It's not enough just to be a moral person. Like, be moral, but that's not gonna lift the veil. You must proclaim Christ as Lord to lift the veil. And when we do, we let the light of the glory of God shine into the darkness around us. And we give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I wanna end with one verse from Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. So we talked about the old covenant and we also talked about, talked about some distorted versions of the new covenant that look a lot like the old covenant. So what is the true gospel? What is this gospel that shines light into the darkness? One verse, Ephesians 2, chapter eight. If you don't have any verses of scripture memorized, I commend this verse of scripture to you. That this would be the root of everything else that you believe. Listen. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Such simple words, but what a beautiful, powerful proclamation of Christ as Lord. I can't save myself. So when somebody who is not a Christian comes to me and says, well, how do you do it? I don't have enough faith to believe. I have all these doubts, I have all these struggles. My first response is, listen, I can't do it either. I didn't save myself. I didn't become a Christian out of what I had. The only thing I had to offer was faith. Oh, so if you have enough faith, God will save you? Yeah, here's how much faith you need to have. Faith of a mustard seed, of the smallest quantity. And guess what? Even that is a gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith. And this is not your own works. It is what? A gift of God. Man, that's good news. That is good news. Listen, when I'm on top of my game, spiritually speaking, I don't have that verse in mind. I'm like, man, look at your faith, Jason. Look how much you've grown. Remember who you used to be? Remember how just sinful and selfish you used to be? Look at where you are right now. That's me proclaiming myself to myself, isn't it? And I've lost sight of this in that moment. But in my hardest moments, my darkest moments, my deepest struggles, like this is my lifeline. Because I don't, in that moment, I don't have any faith to put out on the table. I don't have the strength to be a, a good Christian, let alone a pastor. And Christ says, hey, hey, I know. That's why I died on the cross. That's why you're saved by grace through faith. It's not on your own works. This is a gift of God. Listen, that is what we proclaim to the world around us. That is the true gospel that will lift the veil and shine the glory of Christ into the world around us that the darkness might come to know the light of Jesus. So you're gonna get a chance now to, in keeping with our series, get to hear a story from one of our members, a young lady by the name of Nancy Hale. Uh, a few weeks ago, I had the honor of baptizing her in one of our services. 
And in that service, she shared a little bit of her story. So today, she's going to share almost all of her story with you. And uh, you're going to get a chance to, to watch the video on that and just hear about how Christ was a light in the midst of her darkness in a very real way. And she had to wrestle with this works-based religion versus this salvation that comes by faith alone and Christ alone. You're going to get to hear how this worked for her. Let's pray together, and then we'll, we'll hear Nancy's story. So, Father, we thank you for those who've been here today, both in person and online. God, we know that your word is powerful we know that despite how broken or how dark the world may become, that Jesus, you are sovereign, you are king. And all the brokenness we see around us reminds us, first of all, of where we've come from, that God, you have lifted that veil, you've drawn us to yourself. But it also causes this longing inside of us, Jesus, for you to come back and to make all things new. And we know that the bridge between those two things is the mission you've called us to that until you return, you've called us as your people to be a light, like a, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And today you've just shown us once again what it looks like to be a part of shining that light out into the darkness. So Father, I pray that you would complete your good work that you've begun in us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my name is Nancy Hale. This is my husband, Thomas Hale. Um, we've been together since 2009, <laughs> since 2009, and we have a little girl. Um, her name is Emily. She's three, going on four, but it's kind of like three going on 13, really. <laughs> we've been at Solid Rock since, for myself, 2009, and for uh, him. 2001 for him. Yeah, 2001 for him, um, and he's the one that introduced me to Solid Rock. So my story... It would have to go back pretty much all the way from the very beginning. Um, I come from a Hispanic um, household, Mexican culture. Um, we tend to put our culture and religion together. So the household I grew up in, they were Catholic. And again, there was a lot of, you have to go to church, you have to go to church, you know, for your salvation. But the salvation that they were trying to say is you have to do X, Y, and Z in order for God to love you and accept you into the kingdom of, of heaven. And so that was my personal turmoil as the aspect of religion and just constantly just fearing that if I died tomorrow, I wasn't going to be in heaven. I was going to be just in limbo. And from there, when about the time I turned about four, yeah, so about four, I started having... Um, being abused by one of my family members and this abuse happened from the time I was four all throughout the time I was 14 and I was one that just got the strength and the courage to tell that person that enough was enough and that I didn't want him touching me anymore. After that abuse stopped my dad started abusing drugs and his drug addiction resulted in physical abuse. I felt so defeated and I I said to myself, I was like, God does not love me. Jesus did not die on that cross for me. Because if he did, I would not be suffering as much as I am. And I said, I don't need you and I don't need anybody 
to, to love me because I will learn to love myself and I will save myself. I decided to, to tell a family member of what had happened with this other family member and I was hoping to get some type of support. And the response I got was, um, well, you shouldn't say anything to anybody else. It is not your place and it, it is not right to ruin this person's life. And at that point, I felt really crushed just because I didn't have anybody to depend on. At that point, I just, it was in March of 2009. I sat in my room and I was just sitting there um, being, I was just feeling so angry and so frustrated that my, I felt at that point my entire life was just full of hurt and pain and nobody listening to me and I just felt very alone. And I specifically remember looking up again and I spoke to God one more time. After many years, I was like, I told him, you take a lot of people every day. I was like, and I'm asking you to take me. I don't want to be here anymore. And with that, I tried to take my own life. After that, um, probably about June, I would think, I think my husband, well, he was, he was a former bandmate, but he messaged me on Facebook just to say hi. And we were messaging and from there, we just developed a relationship and we started dating. And just one day he, he asked me if I would like to go to church with him. It was a few years into us going to church together and we went to the Easter service and it was in 2012. And I remember Jason was, he had a cross and then he had this white towel, a pure white towel, and he was just showing us how Jesus, what Jesus and dying on the cross meant and it got, and he showed that it was dirty, that he, he died for us, for our sins. And he said some words and, um, he said, Jesus loves you. God loves you. You just have to have faith, and that's all they're asking of you. It was an incredibly powerful moment for me, emotionally and spiritually. It's, I just felt so much of either just God's love or just this weight that I've been carrying for so long being lifted. And I just sat in that chair and I just started crying. I don't even remember what else he said after that. I remember the worship team came up and I, at first I wasn't listening to the song that they were singing. And then I, I heard the part, it was redeemed that they were singing. And I heard the part um, that all my life I have been called unworthy. And I started crying even more and for the first time, in a very long time, I started praying. I started telling God I was sorry. I started telling Him, I, I get it now. And then I said, Jesus, you have always led and you have always been there for me. But after that, I felt so guilty still. I felt ashamed of how I had acted for so long. And I was trying to figure out like, how, how could I make this up to God? How can I, how can I make things better? And 
I guess that's why it's, it's taken me so long to get to this point. Just understanding and realizing that God heard me say all these things, but He still loved me through it all. He was there throughout all these moments in my life, you know, and pain is not without purpose. I, I don't know, I feel so grateful looking back now at everything I went through and all these things I would ask God all the time, you know, being so young, like I said, asking about, will I ever have this marriage stuff that I always hear when I go to weddings? Will I ever have children that I could love unconditionally and lift them up and in order to lift you up? And all of my hurt and pain I now looking back I understand that he was watching and he was listening to me the entire time through all that abuse and everything I, I knew he had a greater purpose for me now that I look back at it not at that moment but just looking at everything now there was a far bigger picture there's a far bigger purpose to all of this and now I'm I'm sitting here telling my story for our church community and it's very humbling to me and I hope that by speaking my my journey that I could maybe inspire somebody to, to know that if they do feel alone, that they're not alone. That God's always there and I hope that they'll be able to find God in their life and that'll be the light for them because He truly was the light in the darkness for me. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, carry with him in death and raise the law in a new life.